0: Well, hey, good evening, everybody. I, I mentioned this to Jeff earlier. I was excited to see that y'all came back, right? We we began this adventure last Wednesday night, and uh, we didn't run you off yet. So uh, for many of you, this is your second evening with us in this tough questions series. Um, for some of you, this may be your first time here. But uh, whatever your story, however you got here, welcome. We're really uh, looking forward to the time that we have tonight uh, to talk a little more about the issue of Christianity and science. And and once again, just to place this in a context, um, all spring long, so from now until the beginning of April, we're going to be spending Wednesday nights uh, together here talking about big questions that people have about Christianity. Questions that you may have, questions that people you know may have about Christianity, and we're creating a place. Here to be equipped with how do we provide answers to those questions for ourselves and for others. And uh, throughout the course of this semester, we're going to be talking about a number of different topics. We'll highlight some of those a little later on tonight. But we're kicking off with a discussion of science and Christianity. And so um, with me again is Dr. Mike Strauss and Dr. Jeff Harwell. And they were with us last week, and they will help guide us through our discussion again uh, this week. Now, as, as we get started, I want to just uh, do a couple things. First of all, um, I want to just acknowledge that I'm not right about everything that I think, right? And and I want to go one step further and say that Mike is not right about everything that he thinks. Yeah, <laughs> Mike says his his wife will tell you that. Uh, and, and Jeff is not right about everything that he thinks. And you know what? You are not right about everything that you think. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin. I want you to turn to the person sitting beside you and (laughs) say, not you are not right, but I want you to say, I am not right about everything that I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. So it is in a spirit of humility that we get together to talk about challenging things. Now, here's the thing. I'm not right about everything I think. You're not right about everything that you think. These guys on either side of me are not right about everything they think. But here's what I, we all believe. God is right about everything, right? And, and God has revealed to us his truth inside of his word. And he has uh, revealed the greatness of his, of his nature um, in the created order around us. And um, so we are fallible people trying to understand an infallible God. Directed and guided by his spirit. And, and knowing that that dynamic exists um, ought to prompt within us a humility and a love in our discussion. Um, you know, at, at followers of Christ for 2,000 years, um, Jesus said the the hallmark that we should have is is not that we get the tests right in terms of everything that we think and know and believe. Though there is things that God has called us to believe. But he says, they will know that you're my followers by the love that you have for one another. And one of the things I so appreciate about um, just these, these men on either side of me is the love that they have shown to me um, as, a, as a brother in Christ, the love I see them show to those ar- around us, um, and the love they show to one another. And so tonight we're going to talk about some stuff that we don't uh, all agree on um, in terms of all the fine details um, and yet all three of us hold um, very strongly to uh, the word of God and, and believe that this is a final authority. Now, our, how we understand this um, is going to be something that we're going to talk about um, because there are, what we do when we, we have Bible study is we try to get to an understanding of the truth, right? God has revealed it inside of his word, but how do we know and interpret his word correctly, and that is a product of a conversation that is trying to find out what did God communicate in the original audience. What would they have intended and understood, and and we today are, are trying to to make sense of that in our study. Um, all all of all of us on this stage have have read, and, and, and many of you, if not all of you in this room, have read and studied uh, Genesis chapter one, for instance, um, and have have come to convictions about what those verses mean. Um, And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what some of the different interpretations of those verses might be. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation that we have ahead of us. And and as we get started, I want to just begin by by mentioning um, something related to some terminology that was mentioned last week. So last week we talked a little bit about this term, young earth and old earth. How many of you in this room are familiar with the terms young earth and old earth? Okay, lots, lots of hands. Not everybody's hand, but many hands have gone up. So maybe to get us all on the same page about what these terms uh, mean, a, a young earth perspective is a perspective that says that the earth is about six to 10,000 years old and that the, the created order, it all came into being, You know, six to 10,000 years ago, uh, the genealogies in scripture are mostly intact, some gaps, but mostly intact, um, and that uh, the earth was created in six 24-hour days. So that is one perspective, and that would be representative of a young earth perspective. An old earth perspective is the belief that the earth is younger or older, Older than that, right? So, an old Earth perspective is a belief that the Earth is is quite old, and 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 maybe that the universe is some 14 billion years old. That the the Earth itself is about four billion years old, and uh, on from there. And and that understanding sees uh, an agent, from a Christian perspective sees the days of Genesis not as 24 hour days, but as ages um, or extended periods of time. And so as we kind of have that as our setup, uh, I thought we could begin and just have, you know, Mike and, and Jeff both kind of place yourselves on that continuum. There, there are variations within those perspectives, but, but where would you all place yourself inside of a, a young earth, old earth conversation?
1: So I, I do call myself a young earth creationist. I don't think the 6,000 to 10,000 is a good
2: model for that, but I do call myself a young earth creationist. And I would be an old Earth creationist, believing that God created the universe about 14 billion years ago, and then created the Earth about four and a half billion years old. But the important thing is that we're both creationists. We yeah. both believe God did it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the The who of
2: creation is clear
0: uh, to all of us in that. And so, when we think about uh, cre- creation, um, there's no way to have an intelligent biblical conversation about creation without talking about Genesis chapter one um, and Genesis chapter two. And so. You know, maybe we could, as we as we get started uh, here in this conversation, Jeff, maybe you could help kick us off with uh, your, your thoughts and understanding of uh, the book of Genesis, and specifically its accounts of creation.
1: Okay. So, uh, if we go to the slide that says science and the Big Bang, um, Mike's going to talk more about what the Big Bang is, but... Um, Uh, The basic idea is that you know if you stand by a train the the sound is a higher frequency it approaches and a lower frequency as it recedes and the same thing happens with light light is shifted to a higher frequency if it moves towards you to a lower frequency if it's moving away from you and it's kind of a shock when you look at all the galaxies in the universe they're all moving away from us all the galaxies are moving away from all the other galaxies So if you run that back in time, they all come back to the same point. And if you use the current models in physics, they come together at about 13.8 billion years ago. So the the theory that the whole, all of space and time, matter and energy began in a single point, 13.8 billion years ago is the Big Bang. And when you run that forward, you get a signature in the heavens that is the residual of the original light that was emitted by that first atom that then formed the universe. You know what, when we look, we see that light and it's at the frequency that we think it should be at. Um, I think this is, I think the science is spectacularly good. Uh, I think if you, if you look at, at Kepler's um, statements based on his reading of scripture, of what a good scientific theory should be, it meets all of the criteria. It's beautiful, it's simple, it's elegant, um, and it it makes predictions that then you can check within the creation and those predictions check out. So uh, the theory's not complete, it's not perfect, there are still questions. But what's spectacular about it to me, you can go to the next slide, is that it it confirms the biblical view of how God relates to his creation. So when we read Genesis 1 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is outside of the universe, he is outside of space and time. It's a completely different picture of the God of Genesis from all the gods of the nations around. Uh, the, the, those gods are all part of the universe. Our God is outside of the universe. And uh, John one one is uh, one of the most brilliant sentences ever written. When uh, the Apostle John wrote, "In the beginning was the Word." He chooses for the tense of the verb "was" in the Greek an imperfect tense, which means continuous action in the past. So in the beginning, the word wasing. <laughs> Not the not the word began at the beginning, but when the beginning was there, the word already was wasing. So it's a continuous action before the beginning. You're going to learn
0: stuff tonight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wasing. that's good. <laughs> it's a new word. So, uh, Jude 25 before all time. And uh, one of the commentary, one of my favorite commentaries, um, uh, Linsky's commentary. Uh, he talks about. He says this doesn't make a lot of sense. How can you be before time? But in a causal sense, if God is outside of time and he makes time, then he's before time because he had to think up the idea of time. It just totally breaks my mind to even try to think of what it's like for there to be no time, not before there was time, but that God had to come up with the idea of time. Now when, so I celebrate the Big Bang, it confirms the biblical view of God From Genesis to Revelation Uh, now when I look at Genesis when I look at uh, verses 1 2 it says in the beginning God and then we actually see this pattern that starts in verse 3 and so we skip on down to the next slide each day in the six days starts off with then God said and this doesn't start till verse 3 so then God said and so we have in the beginning God created heavens and the earth the earth was formless and void and then when we go down to um, uh, let's go on to the chart next one then we get to verse three we says then God said let there be light and there was light and there was evening and morning one day then there was then God said let there be an expanse separating the waters there was evening and morning a second day then God said let there be dry land and and um, Seas and plants and trees, and that was so when there was um, evening and morning the third day. So the six days of creation all start with, then God said, Let there be, and it was, and then we have evening and morning. So these six days of the creation of the home for God's family come after Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. So I don't have any problem with seeing. The big bang in one one and one two and then having god's special attention to this little planet we call earth which is our home uh, being the focus of these six days of creation All right now uh it's certainly reasonable just looking at the text to take those six days of creation as six 24 hour days i personally don't have a problem with that um Mike is going to talk to you about the meaning of the Hebrew word yom, and he's going to point out that uh, uh, there are at least 11 different ways people have interpreted that word that he can find. Uh, And it's really interesting if you look at um, St. Augustine wrote what he called a literal commentary on Genesis back in the 4th century, so in in the 300 ADs. And when he gets to these series of verses, he says, now what does a day mean to God when God is outside of time? And interestingly enough, he even points out that he even says, it's evening, it's always evening someplace on earth, it's always morning someplace on earth, which seems that he had a view of the world as a sphere, so that it was always evening somewhere and always morning somewhere. So he says, so what does this mean? And he just leaves it at that, he doesn't try to answer it. now, we, we, we are, I don't think that we're required to take day in Genesis 1 as a 24-hour period. And I don't have any problem with uh, coming to a different interpretation of that based on the findings of science. Um, and we, you know, when we read in the scripture that the sun rises and the sun sets, well, we understand that that's phenomenological language. That's the way we talk about the way the sun appears to us. Uh, but we understand that the earth is a sphere and that it rotates on its axis and then that sphere rotates around the sun from science, not from scripture. Okay. So when we look at science, science is, science is just reading out of God's creation what the heavens are telling us. Yeah. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Expanses declaring the work of his hands, day to day pours forth speech and night to night, knowledge. Now, having said that, Genesis is part of the Bible. It's not stand-alone, so we can't just take science and go into Genesis one and reinterpret Genesis one so that it conforms to what science says. Right? And. There, there are at least some there are boundaries that uh, the Scripture puts on our interpretation. Um, we know, it says that mankind is a unity. He made from one man every nation of mankind. We are all descended from one man. One man's sin made all men sinners. Romans five nineteen. Let's keep going here. So one man's disobedience killed all men by the transgression of the one the many died all right uh, and this one man is as distinct as moses and jesus christ uh, death reigned from adam until moses right. so the new testament we could we could look at quotes from jesus uh when we go back into genesis one if we're going to say they're not 24-hour days and we still have these constraints on what's permissible so um, Let's look at death. Let's just quickly look at death. I've already used that more than my time, I oh, think. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: we'll come back, Six, about okay. 60 more seconds and then we'll come back to what you want to talk right. to, Jeff.
1: So um, uh, when we look at death in, in Romans 5, we have to ask a question, is it just physical? Is it just spiritual death that he's talking about? Was there death before Genesis chapter three after the, after, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve? And I think what we need to think about here is that after that, um, after creating animals, um, let's go another one here. Yeah, there we go. After creating animals, God says it's very good on day six. Um, we know that uh, Proverbs 12.10 tells us that the righteous man is concerned about the life of his animals, but even the... Um, Uh, Even the compassion of the wicked is cruel Uh, God cares about the animals And the righteous man cares about the suffering of the animals And Jesus tells us that uh, A sparrow can't die Without the permission of the Heavenly Father God's providence extends Even to the life of these insignificant little creatures So, and beyond that When we get to the new creation, when we get to Isaiah 61, Isaiah 11, we're going to read that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with a young goat. I don't think that Adam and Eve were worried about whether or not a bear was going to eat little Abel or little Cain. I I find it hard to call that very good. Great. So, you know,
0: those are a perspective of interpreting Genesis in terms of, six 24-hour days um, and, and some of the thoughts connected to that. So, you know, with uh, we'll f- flip over here now to you, Mike. And as you read the book of Genesis, um, how do you come to some understanding um, related to that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think the goal of biblical hermeneutics, which means trying to understand the Bible, is to first understand what the original author meant. And those who understand um, ancient Hebrew have wrestled with what the original author meant when he described the universe created in six days. Um, There are at least 11 different views that have been held over the centuries. These aren't influenced by modern science, they're influenced by the text. Uh, The four most popular I put up here that the each day is 24 hours. Another view is that the days serve like an outline, which Jeff said that day one corresponds with day four day two with five and day three with six. That's called the framework view. There's another one that Augustine kind of said, analogical days, that these days are analogous to God's, but we don't know what God's days are. And then the other one of the main views held is the day age view, that each day is an age. And one of the reasons we um, hold to these views is because like the English word day, the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, has lots of meanings. It can mean daylight. It can mean a 24-hour period. It can mean um, an unspecified period of time. It can mean a point in time. In fact, in Oklahoma, we understand that. If I say it's a beautiful day, I mean right now. We might have had a tornado 10 minutes ago. But we go outside, and it's sunny, and everything looks great. We go, it's a beautiful day, and I really mean right now. And so how do you know what the word day means in Genesis 1? Well, the way you know what any word means, you look at the context now i'm not an expert in ancient hebrew language and culture so i have to read those who are um, gleason archer was one of the mo- leading experts in ancient hebrew language he was one of the primary translators of the new american standard bible which is the bible that sits in front of you on the chairs and what he said after studying this is on the basis of internal evidence that means by looking at the text um, it is this writer's conviction that yom in genesis 1 could not have been intended by the hebrew author to mean a literal 24-hour day now when you read in english you go well, it looks like twenty-four hours to me but it wasn't written in english it was written in ancient hebrew ancient hebrew has no word that means an age or an epic or an era so if moses wanted to say the universe was created in six epochs, he would use the word yom we still use the word that way if i say in george washington's day the colonists fought the revolutionary war we mean a period of time So. My best understanding of Genesis 1, although I, as Mark said, I could be wrong, is that each day is a period of time. Jeff and I agree with this. Genesis 1-1 is before the day started. It's the creation of the universe. I think Genesis 1-1 takes 9 billion years from the creation of the universe to the earth. And why does we put 9 billion years in one verse? That seems like a waste of Uh, you know a lot of time it's because the story of the bible is the story of god's interaction with humans that until you have the earth you don't have humans and then genesis 1 2 gives us a perspective and then genesis the rest of the story tells us about the creation of the world god forming the world for humans so if you go to genesis 1 2 it's an important verse it's a verse often overlooked but it says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. It tells us that the earth is formless and void and that the earth is dark, the surface of the deep. It doesn't say the universe is dark. So what modern science tells us, if we were going back to the early earth four and a half billion years ago, and you were to stand on the surface of the earth where the Spirit of God is, the Spirit of God is over the surface of the waters, the earth would be dark, watery, formless and void. Void means no life. It'd be dark, not because there is no sun and moon and stars, but because the atmosphere is so thick and there's so much interplanetary dust between us and the sun that it would always be dark. I have a friend who is an atheist scientist and he read Genesis 1, 2. And he said, how did the writer of Genesis know what the earth was like four and a half billion years ago? And it caused him to say there must be something special about the Bible. He went on to read the bible and become a christian having never met a christian because the science is right in genesis 1 2 if and only if you're standing on the surface of the earth then if you look at the six days of creation on day one god creates light on the surface of the earth so the atmosphere begins to thin and it's like a cloudy day you can tell that it's day and night but you can't see the sun and the moon and stars they're still out there on day two god separates the waters above from the waters below this is the Hebrew word firmament that we translate firmament that some people think is some kind of series of water in the air. But if you were an ancient reader and it said God made waters above and waters below, what would you think? I asked my 10-year-old son this when he was 10 years old He said it sounds a lot like clouds, waters above. And this is God creating a water cycle. Selheimer is an um, ancient Hebrew scholar. He says the word sky appears to cover this sense. The waters above are clouds. God starts the water cycle. On day three, God creates continents. This is a chart from a book by secular scientists. It's a chart of the history of land on the earth. On the far left side, it says about 0%. That means there's almost no land on the earth. It's all water when the earth was first formed. What does the Bible say? That the Spirit of God is over the surface of the waters. And then if you look at this chart, for 1.5 billion years, it's almost all water. And then it goes from one and a half to two, you get this thing shooting up. That's when the dry land appears. That's day three. Secular science tells us there's a period for one and a half billion years after the the earth was formed to two billion years after the earth was formed when dry land appeared, just like Genesis says on day three. On day four, the atmosphere finally clears up. And you can see the sun and the moon and the stars. It's not that they were created on day four. In fact, the Hebrew word is that they had been made. It's like a past tense. God made them in the past. And now you can see them. In fact, Bible scholars say this. Um, Schofield says that on day four, when you see the sun and moon stars, that the word is used that is meant made appear or made visible. He says the sun and the moon were created in the beginning. What does it mean that god created the heavens and the earth in the beginning so this always bugged me how do you get light on day one when you don't have the sun and the moon and stars till day four it's because the light appears on day one you can't yet see the sun and moon and stars and on day four the atmosphere clears so you can see them day five god creates birds and sea mammals i won't go on all the details day six god creates certain land mammals There are very specific Hebrew words that are used that primarily refer to the land mammals that humans interact with. And then finally, God creates humans who I agree with Jeff. These are unique creatures. Unlike any others, we have a spiritual life. So the amazing thing to me is if you take Genesis 1-2 seriously and say the story is not told from God's perspective outside the universe looking in, but from the spirit of God's perspective on the surface of the earth. And it's told as you watch the earth being developed that these six days of creation are exactly what modern science would say appears in these six periods of time where each day can be millions or billions of years. The order is so perfect that I know of people who have come to Christ because they believe science. They believe a four and a half billion year old earth and they look at the order and say, how could someone get it right if this book isn't divinely inspired? And so I think that this day-age view not only fits what the original writer was discussing, but fits what we know for modern science.
0: So, Mike, when you you think about you know that you just walked through your understanding of Genesis
2: in one, ten minutes, right? Really, 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 <laughs> really <laughs> did. So,
0: um, but you, you also are a scientist. So you're you're a Christ follower. You look to Genesis one to find answers related to creation, um, but you also are a scientist. So maybe share with us a little bit about just you know your, your your thoughts on the science behind what we just talked about.
2: Yeah, I mean, Jeff said it so well. Some things about the Big Bang. In, in the church, sometimes we think that the Big Bang is somehow a theory that was developed by science to remove God from the picture. I've heard people call the Big Bang an atheistic theory. Um, but it's really quite different. There's a misunderstanding. So um, what, this is what the Big Bang says, that the universe began about 14 billion years ago, that everything came into existence, space, time, matter, and energy and that the universe has been expanding and cooling since. It started out really hot. Again, there's confusion about this word Big Bang. I said this last week. Sometimes it's referred to as this very origin of the universe when science doesn't really tell us what happens. Sometimes it refers to about a trillionth of a second after the origin when science does have a good idea of what happened. So when scientists, when you hear scientists say that um, they are questioning the Big Bang, they're not questioning the 14-billion-year-old history of the universe. They're questioning that very first moment. Um, Scientists don't like the Big Bang. Um, Arthur Eddington, when it was first proposed in 1930, said, philosophically, the notion of the beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant. I should like to find a genuine loophole. Scientists think the Big Bang's a dirty word because it means the universe might have a beginning. And whether that beginning was 14 billion years ago or 6,000 years ago, If it had a beginning, it points to a beginner. Um, So scientists have accepted this theory, this idea, this hypothesis, not because it's atheistic, but they've accepted it despite the philosophical implications. And the reason is because the evidence is so overwhelming. Um, There's three pieces of evidence for the Big Bang that I can't go into the the math because I don't want to put you to sleep, but the universe is expanding. Everybody says it's getting larger. It's very clear by watching it. If it's expanding, it must have started to expand. We can measure the amount of the lightest elements in the periodic table, hydrogen and helium. And the Big Bang predicts how much of those we should see in the universe. And our theory matches what we see to one part in 10,000. It's a remarkable, you know, the fifth decimal place is right. And then the temperature of the universe. The universe started out really hot, and it's been cooling ever since. And we should be able to measure that cooling, and we do. We measure exactly what we would expect from a Big Bang. And it's because of these ideas that scientists reluctantly accept this. Not because it leads them away from God, not because it points away from God, because it points to a beginner. So not only do scientists observe these things, but there's lots of theoretical ideas. And by theory, I mean proven mathematical ideas that point to a beginning as well. Robert Jastrow, who's an agnostic scientist, wrote this about the Big Bang and its theistic implications back in the 1970s. He wrote, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. If the agnostic scientist recognizes that this is a theory that the theologians have been sitting and explaining for centuries, why does the church not recognize that? I don't know the answer, but I think we should. Um, scientists don't like the Big Bang. If you read popular science books, these books, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, The Grand Design by Hawking and Mlodinow, A Universe from Nothing by Larry Krauss, these are all atheist scientists who are trying to get out of the Big Bang, because it points to beginner are trying to explain the beginning without a creator in fact part of a brief history of time says why do we need a creator he's trying to find a way out scientists don't like this christians don't like it either i think scientists and christians think the big bang is a dirty word and and what i often hear is christians will say well no one was there so how do we know what happens well the spirit of god was there and he told us what happened but beyond that we actually observe the past Do you know when you look at saturn um, Greg Hill has a wonderful telescope that I've seen Saturn in his telescope. Saturn, the light from Saturn takes two hours to reach us. When I look at Saturn, I don't see what it was like is like now. I see what it was like, you know, two hours ago. The closest star, the light takes four years to reach us. When I look at the closest star, I don't see what it's like now. I see what it's like four years ago. I don't have to guess what the past was like. I see it in my telescope. We see galaxies that are 13 billion years old. It's taken 13 billion years for the light to reach us. We don't have to guess what happened in the past. We see it in our telescopes. And we have mathematical calculations that we can you know, wind the tape backwards and see exactly what should happen. We can start with the Big Bang, run all the physics and chemistry we know in a computer, and we get exactly the universe we see. Um, there are unanswered questions. I mean, we're trying to understand what happened 14 billion years ago, and we have it almost all figured out except for the first trillionth of a second. Isn't that remarkable? And, yeah, there are things we don't understand about the first trillionth of a second, and that's why I still have a job because I still have, a you know, ability to look at that. Okay? So... Um, Arnold You're saying
0: your job is to look at a trillionth of a second. Yeah. 14 <laughs> billion years ago. Yeah, so
2: actually I work at the CERN Large Hadron Collider, and when we smash particles together, we create the energy density, the conditions that existed a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So we can actually study what happened at that point. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. You can come see it. You know, That'd we be go, great. S- go to Switzerland. All right. So I'm in anyway, on that trip arnold Penzias, who discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation the residual heat from the big bang and won a nobel prize wrote this about the big bang the best best data we have are exactly what i would have predicted had i nothing to go on but the five books of moses the psalms the bible as a whole i, I often tell you know my friends like jeff who are young earth creationists and those who even are more strongly young earth creationists if i can use that who believe the earth is 6,000 years old. Whether or not you believe in the Big Bang, you should have it in your toolbox. Your non-believing friends already believe in the Big Bang. They just don't know. It's one of the best evidences for God ever imagined. And you can use that to draw them to Christ. So in my opinion, the Big Bang is the best objective evidence for the existence of God other than the resurrection of Jesus. If you had told a scientist 100 years ago that we would have definitive proof that the universe had a beginning, they would have laughed at you. But that's right where we're at. And again, whether you believe it's biblical or not, you need to understand that this theory points to God, and therefore you can use it when you're talking to friends who think that there's no evidence for God. Next week, we're gonna talk about evidence for God, and one of the things I'm gonna say is the universe had a beginning. It means, as Jeff said, the beginner has to be outside the universe. And it points to the God, the Bible, who exists outside of the universe but interacts with this universe. It's wonderful evidence for God.
0: So, Jeff, you, know, you, you also are, are not uh, just a, you know, uh, somebody who reads Genesis, but you're also a scientist. And you're wrestling with some of the same things that, that Mike has, has shared. And so maybe share with us some, some other thoughts that you have. Uh, concerning the science um, and how it connects to your understanding of Genesis. Okay, so.
1: Oh, sorry, I couldn't quite hear
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Siri. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We didn't program any time <laughs> for Siri, so
1: she didn't get her period. All right. Um, so as I said, earlier, I, I, I don't feel like I did to struggle with the science of the Big Bang and fitting it into Genesis. I think it fits in. Easily and normally within the normal reading that any of us would have of the, you know, the first three verses of Genesis Um, Where I have a problem with a four four and a half billion year old earth is in the is in the issue of animal death Um, and the origin of of, uh, uh, the origin of mankind Uh, And the scripture is quite clear that man has a special beginning. He has a special relationship with God uh, though we are animals, we are also different from all the other animals. Um, so I am, I am stuck with the question of what I do uh, with some of the geological evidence, for the example, the paleontology. paleontology. Um, and I, I'm not going to give you anything that I think is a comprehensive answer. Um, I think the answer is potentially found in some direction that these things point you in one is the the issue of apparent age. So, um, uh, you know, if God creates a distant galaxy, he is not constrained by the physics to wait for the light to reach us. He can make that galaxy with the light already here. If you think of the trees in the garden, did those trees have tree rings? Well, they had to have tree rings or they wouldn't have the, the structural integrity that is given by the structure of a tree. So... Was God being, would God have been deceptive to have put tree rings on the trees in the garden? I don't think so. They're, he just made trees like Adam and Eve would then see for the rest of their lives. Um, I think the, 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 the wedding that Jesus, the wine that Jesus made at the, the wedding in Cana is a, is a good illustration of this problem of apparent age. Um, you remember uh, Jesus had the, um, the servants there at the wedding fill containers with water that they drew and then he said take some of it to the master of the of the feast to the wedding feast and when he when he tasted it he said he had to call the bridegroom over the wine was so spectacularly good he said uh, anyone else would wait until uh, the guests have had uh, lots to drink and then he'd bring out the poor wine you brought out the best wine at the last and so I you know I If, as a chemist, I were to analyze that wine on my GC mass spec, I would find fermentation products. I would find hydrolysis products. I would find mineral compositions that I suspect would have been representative of the soil and the weather um, in in, uh, Galilee uh, for that vintage of wine that Jesus produced. It would appear to be old. Same way for the bread that Jesus provided for the 5,000. Now, he made that bread from nothing. Uh, he took those five loaves and fishes, and then he just kept producing more bread. Right? But if I analyze that bread on my GC mass spec, I suspect it looked like it, uh, it was made from wheat that had grown, had been under the sun, had minerals, had rain. Uh, it, would, it would look like it had a history, even though its only history was that it had come from Jesus' hand. So uh, these are elements that I think we need to incorporate into trying to explain the scientific data that we get when we look at the earth. Um, Genesis also tells us that something happened after the fall. God said to Adam, "Cursed is the ground because of you, henceforth it will bring forth uh, weeds and thorns. Um, and uh, Paul tells us in Romans eight, that the creation, that at the revealing of uh, the church in our glorified bodies uh, after our resurrection, that the, that the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now, uh, Paul doesn't tell us what slavery to corruption means, but it gives me pause in taking uh, the laws of physics as they are today and extrapolating them back so um, and uh, you know scientists acknowledge that they don't have answers to every question that they're asking Um, just as an example um, uh, we now believe that 95 percent of the the universe is made up of something that we're calling dark matter and dark energy Uh, it doesn't interact with Light It doesn't interact with the electromagnetic radiation, even though it warps space-time. So as a result, galaxies seem to spin a lot faster than they ought to spin if all of the matter in the galaxy was made up of visible matter like we see around us. So what is this dark matter? What is this dark energy? It's a situation where there's ongoing investigations. Once we understand that, we may have a little bit different answer. when we run our equations backwards, you have, to, you have two things that you have to have in your equations, even when your equations are correct. One of them is your starting point, and another one is the constants in the equation that tells you what the next step back in time looks like. And if we, we get one answer, if we assume those constants never change, but if they were different in the past or if they were changing, then we would get a different answer. Right now, we're mostly constrained to assume that those constants are what we see today in order to be able to run our equations backwards. And then there's, there's one more thing. Uh, scripture describes the great flood in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. Uh, And it describes a catastrophic destruction of the earth that existed at that time. Uh, The fountains of the great deep were burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened. And if you took the current waters that are on the earth, that are in the oceans, and you made the earth a smooth marble and put that water on the surface, the water on the surface of the earth would be a mile and a half deep. So uh, Psalm 104 tells us that, that God made the let say it here? the waters were standing above the mountains the mountains rose the valleys sank to the place which you established for them so that these waters will not return to cover the earth uh, so the, uh, my understanding of this is that the great deeps of the ocean 6 and 7 miles deep are there in order for God to have a place to put the water with which he destroyed the earth that existed uh, at the time of Noah. So these are catastrophic events in which God intervened in the history of the earth in a supernatural way. And another thing you, you find when you try to run your equations forward or backwards, if you go across a discontinuity and you don't know what happened at this at discontinuity, things change on the other side of it. So we're making certain assumptions when we run our equations backwards or when we try to explain. Everything that we see in the current Earth on the basis of what we see today. So, um, now I was also asked to address: is, is is there any scientific proof for a young Earth? I don't think that there is. Um, I'm not aware of any scientific evidence that establishes that the Earth is uh, tens of thousands of years old. Now, I think that there's some hints that it might be. Uh, one of the hints is that we know that the uh, orbits of uh, short-term comets, uh, they will have all have decayed into the sun within a couple of million years. Now, the hypothesis explaining why we still have short-term comets is something called the Oort Cloud. And it's outside of the orbit of uh, Pluto. Uh, and there's, there are comets in storage there that are periodically dislodged and they begin to orbit the Earth. And that's the reason we still have comets. Um, if you look at the rings of Saturn, they are falling into the in, back into Saturn ten thousand tons a minute. Uh, they will all be gone in hundred thousand years. So the fact that we can see the rings of Saturn is either an incredible accident of history, or they're just not that old. Uh, so I don't think any of these things are proof, because there are scientific explanations for how they could have originated. Uh, within the last uh, couple of million years or the last couple of hundred thousand years. But they are a hint that the solar system may be a lot younger than four and a half billion years.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Now, I want to ask a couple of questions, and we're going to have an opportunity for for you to ask questions as well and, and on your handout that you got on the way in there's an opportunity to text in some questions Brian's compiling those and we'll have a chance to answer some of those but I, I want to ask a couple of questions that I have um, and so you know my first question I want to ask the mic and really it has to do with the issue of death so if you have a very old earth and even life on the earth being very old um, that sure sounds like things died either that or there were some really old dogs (laughs) right um and and that gets into some of what Jeff was was bringing up too so and and yet I I see in scripture as Jeff has has brought to our attention in in Romans 5 and and even in in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall that death enters into that equation so how do you wrestle with the issue of death in Genesis and Romans 5 and an old earth
2: yeah um that's a great question. We've talked about this. I'll, I'll answer it, but I'm going to go off script for one minute first. Isn't this great, right? <laughs> I mean, we have, this is what I, one of the things I love about true Christianity. As we talked about last week, there are essential things. We all agree that Christ is God incarnate. The salvation comes through grace by faith, that there's a resurrection. And yet we can dialogue about this, and we both agree the Bible's 100% correct. And it's wrestling with what it means, whether it's, you know, Psalm 104, Romans 8, which J- Jeff discussed. I mean, I've wrestled with these passages, and I have what I think are good answers. But the fact that we can discuss this, that we can love God with our mind, it's just awesome. So I had to say that. All right, so now, now to the question, right? So here's what I believe. I believe that the Bible teaches that the death that came through the fall was the physical death, was, was the spiritual death of humans not the physical death of plants and animals. And I think actually that's consistent with what the Bible says. I don't think physical death of animals is a moral issue. I've killed spiders in my house and rodents in my yard, and I don't think it's a moral issue. I don't think a lion, you know, wrestles with the humane way to kill the antelope because it needs to eat. Um, And I think here's some biblical things that to me say that the death that came through the fall was not physical death of of humans or plants and animals, but spiritual death. Um, God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And every Bible scholar says that means when you eat of it. Well, did Adam die physically? No, and doesn't God always keep his promise? Yes. So how did Adam die the day he ate the fruit? He died spiritually, I think. I've done a systematic study of the life and death that came through the fall and salvation, particularly in the New Testament. And over and over again, what God is talking about when he talks about life and death and salvation doesn't deal with physical life. The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, we'll perish physically. It must not mean that. So it must be spiritual life. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That, that verse used to bug me. I grew up believing that all the death that came through the fall was physical death as well. And, and then Jesus says that if you believe me, you'll never see death. He who has the Son has the life. It's present tense. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. But you'll die physically. There's so many passages in Scripture. John 11:26. 26, whoever lives by believing me will never die. He tells Martha that. Believe in me, you'll never die. She's thinking, of course I'll die. Well, he's not talking about physical life. He who is my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I don't think there's a single verse in the Bible that is unequivocally talking about physical death when it talks about the fall and the consequences of the fall. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And let's look at Romans 5.12, which is a great verse and a real passage we need to struggle with and understand what paul meant he says therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way here's the consequence of death paul could have said in this way death came to everything but he doesn't he doesn't say death came to the universe or death came to animals or death came to plants he says death came to people because people sin what death comes to people that doesn't come to the rest of the universe Spiritual death, because we're the only spiritual beings. Um, I don't think the original creation was perfect. It was very good. In fact, it wasn't meant to be perfect. God's going to create, and the last point, God's going to create a new universe in which there is no death. But he's got to destroy this one first. I used to wonder, why doesn't God just restore this universe back to how it was before the garden if it was perfect? But I don't think it was perfect. It wasn't meant to be perfect. It wasn't meant to last forever. Forever. Nowhere in scripture does it say the lion and or the lamb will lie together before the fall. It says in the future the wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's talking about a coming kingdom that's different than this one. Um, I think this is a very good creation because I think it accomplishes God's purpose. My personal belief, although I can't prove this spiritually, is that Satan fell before God created this universe. So there's already the problem of sin and evil and rebellion. And God's purpose in this universe is to defeat sin and evil and rebellion once and for all. He starts out with a very good garden and and spiritual beings. In Genesis 3, we already have death because the third chapter of the Bible, we have sin and evil. And for the whole Bible, that problem exists until the second to the last chapter, Revelation 20, when Satan is cast in the lake of fire. The whole thing is Satan in the garden, Satan cast in the lake of fire. I believe Satan had fallen. This universe was never meant to be perfect. It was meant to defeat the problem of evil. And in doing so, we play a huge role as spiritual moral beings. But it wasn't then a perfect universe with no death before the fall, no physical death. Um, There was physical death, I think. That was part of God's plan.
0: Okay, so that's a question that I have related to an an old earth perspective and, and you shared uh, a response to that, Mike. Um, I, I have a question now f- uh, for, for you, Jeff, from, from your, your perspective. And so this this question really revolves around um, the appearance of age. And, and you referenced it when you said, um, does, does appearance of age mean deception or sleight of hand by God in some way? And when we, just just for clarity's sake for all of us, when we say appearance of age, that means that when God created the first pig or the first you know giraffe and placed them on the earth, they weren't necessarily an embryo. But they were a full being. So they, they, were, they were created with the appearance of age, as we understand it. Adam was not created as an embryo. He was created as a man, um, those kinds of things. And, and when I wrestle through that, that idea, that makes good sense to me. But what about um, an argument that might come something like this? What about things not created with the appearance of just age, but with the appearance of some kind of a history? So, you know, whether that is a galaxy that looks like it has exploded, like a, a supernova Did I get get it Mm -hmm. it right? Okay, good. Um, uh, Like like that, or um, like burn marks and tree rings
1: and those kinds of things.
0: How do you you think through those and wrestle through those um, as as looking through the science from your perspective?
1: Yeah. So if I look, for example, at the remnants of a supernova, and our our theories today explain that the heavier elements – not the hydrogen and the helium, but the heavier evidence are forged inside of stars. And so that then the explosion of the stars distributes those elements across the universe. And so you see uh, an exploding, you see a a star that has supernovaed, and you know that these elements were distributed across the universe and are available then for the creation of our bodies. So, um, and because I don't think that the Big Bang is part of the six day the six days of creation right. then if god made those elements through a process of star formation the forging of the elements in the star and then the exploding of the star then that's part of the 13.6 billion years not the hmm. not the last however many hundred thousand it's been does that does that yeah. make sense yeah
0: no it, definitely and in, in just just thinking about that a little, little further just um, because I, I, don't, I don't have an issue with a, with God being deceptive with creating grown beings or things with the appearance of some age. Um, but h- how would you answer that? Somebody came to you in, in their classroom and said, but Dr. Harwell it looks like the earth is really old. Why would God set up the universe to look old and it not be old? H- how would you answer that?
1: So, I, I mean, I th- it's interesting if you, if you think about the supernova, for example, um, it is really hard for us to to put ourselves outside of time. So because God is outside of time, when he looks at the 13.8 billion-year-old universe, uh, every point in that space-time is now to God. There's not a past, a present, and a future. It's all now to God. So if you take the 13.8 billion-year-old history of space-time, including the process by which the heavier elements are made they're still made by that process and then whether it's a hundred thousand years ago or four and a half billion years ago god then at this point in space-time says okay this is where i'm going to put my family's home Mm -hmm. then all of that history is history to us but it's it's not history to god from god's perspective there's no time gap between genesis 1 2 and or Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Uh, it's all now to him, and it's just incomprehensible. But that's the God that we find in the Bible. That's the God that has been delivered to us by modern physics. So all of space-time is external to him. It's all now as far as he's concerned.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> the, the, the other thing we could add to that even is just that, that God doesn't owe us another explanation. <laughs> You know, if God chooses to create grown beings instead of infant beings um, out of in his providence, he can do that.
1: My favorite question is, did Adam and Eve have a belly buttons?
0: <laughs> so answer for us definitively, Dr. <laughs> Harwell, from your deep scientific study. Hey, what that look like? <laughs> I actually had a friend that didn't have a belly button because oh, so. of another medical procedure, and it was really fun to go swimming. So, yeah. <laughs> You heard
2: it in church. Right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we we have uh, covered some ground here tonight um, in, in a great way. And so I I've been listening to you all and I've not been looking at these cards. So I'm going to I'm going to go by faith that this top question is the best question to ask. And I'm going to read it and we'll we'll direct it and see where we go. So this this question says I read an article that suggested that cosmic inflation occurred before the Big Bang. And this removed the need for a beginning. Can you explain this? Oh. Yeah. yeah, so
2: <laughs> again, this is what I mean by this double definition of the Big Bang. This thing called, some people define the Big Bang as about a trillionth of a second after the origin, and so they'll say the Big Bang wasn't the beginning, and cosmic inflation is something that occurred before that first trillionth. So if I define the Big Bang as a trillionth of a second after the beginning, then of course something occurred before the Big Bang. But if I define the Big Bang as the origin, then nothing occurred before it. So it really is just semantics. And there's a lot of reasons to believe inflation may be true, but we won't go into those.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another question. Can you explain a little about radiocarbon dating and why it is reliable or is it not reliable?
1: So um, carbon in the atmosphere uh, in the form of CO2, is hit by cosmic radiation and, and it picks up an extra it picks up a little extra weight uh... now that heavier carbon is not stable and so we know the rate at which this heavier carbon is produced in the universe Well, once in the atmosphere once it gets incorporated into a uh, a tree or a human being or an animal uh... Th- then as that unstable, heavier carbon starts to break down spontaneously, it's not replaced by additional heavier carbon because that heavier carbon comes out of the atmosphere. So if we look at the ratio of the heavy to the light carbon, then we can say when this uh, organic um, uh, artifact stopped taking carbon out of the atmosphere, so we have a good approximation of the time that it, it died, or it perished, or it was buried, um, and it's highly that that we with the modern analytical tools that we have, we can be highly accurate, assuming the decay rate is the same as it is today, and assuming that the production rate in the atmosphere is the same it was today, uh, then we can get really accurate dates back to five thousand years, and we can get we can get reasonable dates with more uncertainty uh, past that. Uh, I don't think that the carbon dating really puts us uh, past anything that is consistent with a, um, you know, any of the interpretations of Genesis 1 that we've had today, that we've talked about today.
0: Great. Anything you'd add to that?
2: No. Okay.
0: Uh, here, here's, a, here's a question for you, for you, Mike, since Jeff took that one. Um, it says, Old Earth versus Young Earth, with written history being 3,500 years how is it okay to get to 14 billion years old? And what methods of dating argon carbon, etc.? you know, h- how do you, how do you get to that age?
2: Yeah, so um, do we have five hours? <laughs> I mean, um, so what we know is that human history that started with what you consider really modern human behavior, building cities, agriculture, things like that, is probably about 10,000 years old. But there are so many lines of evidence that the universe is old. Um, Radioactive dating is highly accurate. I know that people who believe that the Bible teaches the Earth is young will sometimes question radioactive dating, um, the process that Jeff described, and they will bring up some of the presuppositions in radioactive dating. So let me just give you a story. We have a astronomer at OU who dates meteorites with argon potassium dating, radioactive dating. And um, so I decided to play the devil's advocate, and I decided to walk into his office and throw out the objections that young earth creationists use, because I read a lot, I know what they are. Um, if, if you know those objections, there are things like the amount of daughter particles and the rate of radioactive decay. So I went to his office and I said, um, so-and-so, here's some objections I have to you trusting radioactive carbon dating. As a good scientist, can you tell me how you check your presuppositions? And for two hours, he told me how they checked the presuppositions, Scientists know these things. You're not going to hear something from somebody who believes the Earth is young that a scientist doesn't already know. These guys' lives and reputations are based on the fact what they're they're writing in the publications. If they discover something new, if they discovered the universe was 6,000 years old, they'd win Nobel Prizes. It'd be great. They, They trust the evidence, and they test the presuppositions. Yes, you can trust potassium-argon dating. You can trust argon-argon dating. I can go into, you know, years and years of describing why you can trust the dates we get from looking out in the solar system. We can check the presuppositions. We can check the speed of light. Things like this. We can check that decay rates are the same by looking at distant stars. There are ways to check these things. I asked once. I once asked a leader who belie- a, a, lead- a Christian leader who believed that the universe was young. And I asked him, has any scientist you've ever talked to changed his view from the universe being old to being young based on the scientific evidence? And his answer was no. So are you telling me there's not one intellectually honest scientist who's not a believer in the whole world who can't look at the evidence and change his mind? Or is it just that the evidence that the earth is young is is not there? Now again, I want to reiterate what Mark said. I could be wrong. I could get to heaven and God could say, you idiot, you missed all the evidence. And then God and I will have a nice long talk. We have forever to deal with that, right? But but I guarantee you, the scientists have come to the conclusion of the age of the earth and the universe not because it points away from God. (laughs) And the evidence all converges on the same date, no matter what lines of evidence you take. The earth is 4.6 billion years old, the universe is 13.7 or eight. And all the evidence points to the same thing. Scientists hate the fact that it's only 13.8 billion years old. They want it to be infinite. Because then you can have evolution, which neither one of us believe in. Then you can have all these rare things happen. It's not that old. It takes hundreds of trillions of years if evolution could ever work. 14 billion is not that old. And so all the evidence points to it, and the evidence is good. Scientists come to that date because they want to find the right answer. Now again, it could look old. And be young. There's lots of other options. God does anything He wants, and I can be wrong. But this is where the evidence points to.
0: And just just to maybe underline that point, would would you both agree that the Earth is is based on our science? If our scientific understanding is accurate, observing the universe, the, the universe is either old or looks old. Would that be is that a fair way to say that?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. You know, yeah. as, as as we Now as the we there
2: are some it? young Earth creationists who would say no. They would they have an explanation for everything that looks old, why it's not. So, so again, you, I, I can point you to that literature if you want to read it. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. So an- another, another question to ask here just really has to do, this is really a biblical question and It has to do with the connection between Genesis one and Genesis two. So it says, you know, does Genesis two contradict Genesis one in any way in terms of the creation order of animals and then men, um, and, and, also how it connects to the creation of, of women, not asked on the card here, but we see men and women created in day six in Genesis one. And then in Genesis two, it seems like man, and then woman's created later. So how, how, how do you think about that? This is,
1: yeah, I, I can give you the answer that, uh, the church has given for, and that the, the Jews gave for, uh, the last 3000 years at least, and uh, that's the genesis 2 just zeroes in on a part of the sixth day it is is giving special attention to the creation of the special being the man and then we see more in detail what happened uh, the concept that there's a contradiction is really a 18th century invention
0: yeah Yeah. and and one thing just to just to add to that and this connects to something i've heard you say before mike i don't remember if you said it tonight but just in terms of when, when God says he created this and it was good, it was good for what? If, based on, on your understanding and, and even seeing that emphasis into chapter 2 of the creation of Adam and Eve, h- how would
2: you see it's good for what? How would you answer well, for that? for God's purposes, what those yeah. may be. Yeah. And and again, I think, you know, that some people say, well, God creates the animals after man in Genesis 2. But he doesn't. He brings the yeah. animals to um Adam and then the verb again is a past tense that he had made them so it's really you're right it's a modern idea that there's a contradiction it's really not there
1: you're looking for the contradiction is the reason you apparently find one
2: well and and it's interesting we get we get more
0: data on the creation of humanity and on the creation of the genders male and female than you do about anything else in creation and I think that shows an emphasis Mm -hmm. right I mean, it's the well. It's an
1: important emphasis too. It, it it points out that the man and the woman are equals. Yeah, both they, given the task. They're, they're, they they yeah. are the same. They rule together. But there's a and there's a relationship, and they need each other. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. that's unique in uh, that's also unique in uh, ancient literature.
0: Yeah. Every every couple I do premarital counseling with right now, we, we start in Genesis one. We read it, and then we go to Genesis 2, and then we go to Genesis 3, and then I promise them that we're we'll not read every chapter <laughs> before we get out of that first session. Um, but but it's because it's so foundational, it's foundational in your understanding of the universe.
1: Founda- and foundational to our understanding of marriage and family.
0: Yeah, yeah so so
1: critical. So thankful that it's there. Yeah. Uh, Do one last question
0: here. If Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, wouldn't this mean that the earth fell off its axis?
1: <laughs> so. Yeah. I, 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 I can, you go ahead. So, um, if the, it, so we don't know what mechanism God used by which to make, by, by, by uh, what mechanism God used to make the sun stand still in the sky. Uh, he had plenty of options, including just deciding to modify the laws of physics for that short period of time. So, um, when God intervenes supernaturally in an event, um, uh, I, I don't know how he makes all the details work, but I assume that it's no problem for him. <laughs> right. Out of the Red Sea part, right? That's it's right. another
0: question, similar. Mike, anything you'd well, add well, to that? Well, I
2: think the other thing is we need to be careful that we are, um, what Joshua saw, right? I mean, yeah. I say the sun rises, and if you want to be technical, you tell me I'm an idiot because the sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates. Joshua saw the sun stand still. As Jeff said, how did that happen? I don't know. God could have simply diffracted the light and not change any of the laws of physics. I mean, there's lots of ways that from Joshua's perspective, the sun stopped moving that, you know, from miracles to whatever. And so to me, you have to be careful that you're not reading in more. It doesn't say the earth quit rotating. It said Joshua got more light that day so he could defeat his enemies. And I don't know how God did that, but he did it in a way that all the laws of physics worked just fine for the rest of the time.
1: And I'm sure yeah. he, it was no problem. And it was no problem. <laughs> he said a
2: word and he created this whole huge, gigantic <laughs> universe, right? It's no problem. Well, well,
0: friends, a couple things. First of all, many thanks again to Jeff and the Mike. Um, so appreciate you all being willing to, to invest a couple of evenings with us <laughs> to answer these questions and to help guide our further understanding. Um, I, I love any chance I get to spend with you all, the fact that we got to have this conversation in front of a couple hundred people makes it even more fun. Um, Also, just so you know, um, though our section on science and Christianity is concluding right now, this series is not concluding. As a matter of fact, it's just getting started. And uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be tackling many more questions that are hard questions that are asked. All the questions are not coming from science. They come from a number of different spots. And so um, next week, for instance... Uh, is going to be a discussion of how do we how do we know that there is a God and what are some of the arguments for the existence of God. That conversation next Wednesday night right here. Um, and from this point on in the semester, Mike will be back as one of the instructors, but also Tim Lasher. Tim, would you just stand up? Um, we're really excited to have Tim on the teaching team for this class as well. And Tim and Mike will be um, guiding those discussions again next week on the existence of God. So we'd love to, to have you uh, back with us next Wednesday night and, and bring anyone that you know of that that might be an issue of concern for them. We'd, we'd love to, to just be able to talk about those things together. Um, Also, just so you know, as we had last week on this table right down here, Marcy can wave at us. Marcy's still got her coat on. It's cold outside. (laughs) Um, But uh, down here, we we have a table. We have a couple of different resources there for you. The first resource that you'll see down there is a book called I'm Glad You Asked. Uh, It is a book that answers tough questions in um, common language. And it's, it's a very helpful book. I've read it. I would recommend it. Um, $10 for that book down low and then we also have uh, a book that Mike wrote that details some of what he has shared about um, creation and how it points to a creator a book called Creator Revealed Um, great great book that's available for sale down there as well so anyway just wanted you to know that that we are are for you and we want to have resources available for you to go deeper and to grow in your relationship with God as you follow Christ and it's a privilege for all of us to do that together Uh, friends thanks so much I'm going to pray When I say amen, um, we would love to just hang out and talk more. And so Mike and Jeff are going to be out in the gathering hall. Um, I'll be out there as well, and we'd invite you to come out there and join us. We're going to have a worship practice going on in here, so it's going to get noisy. So let's go out there, and we can talk more uh, after we pray. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to be together with friends tonight and to look at uh, just the, the truth uh, that you have revealed in your word about creation and how it points to you as our loving creator, God. Thank you so much that uh, we are not here by accident, but we are here on purpose, created in your image, to have a relationship with you. Father, I pray that, that uh, we would just respond to that knowledge uh, by trusting in you and leaning upon you for our understanding of all things, including the things we talked about tonight. And, Father, I pray that, that uh, you also would just be with us in our study all semester long on these tough questions, that you would equip us to have an answer for the questions that come our way, that we would know the reason for our faith when asked. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be together, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, thank you. We will see you next Wednesday.